So in the last few weeks and over the next few weeks, we have been looking at what kind of church do we want to be. City Church, of course, gone through all sorts of changes, and uh, we've come together with Bridge, now one church in the city, uh, with elders over the whole thing, and site teams looking after the sites, and staff teams that have changed, all sorts of new things. And then we need to ask the question, what do we want to do? Who do we want to be? And of course, we find that in God's words. And it's important that we do this. And we said, I said a few weeks ago, we could easily come up with a nice catchphrase that would encapsulate something of who we want to be together. But rather than do that, and maybe one day we will, but rather than do that, we really want to look into God's word, find the principles that God puts here for us to live by, and then seek to work them out together as a people. That's what it means to be God's church. And that's who we want to be. So We've been looking at various aspects of what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church is City Church to be? And we said, firstly, it's a church for God, uh, and then it's a church for people. And today we're looking at being a generous church, a church that is known for its generosity because God is generous. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Let's just pray and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you that you are a generous God. Thank you, Lord God, that you so loved that you gave. Thank you, Lord, that right from the beginning that you gave a world, a universe to us to enjoy, but also to understand something about who you are. And I pray, Lord God, we wouldn't just give lip service to understanding that you're a kind and gracious and generous God, but that we would seek to reflect that in how we live individually and corporately together. Father, we want to be a people who are like you as much as we possibly can, filled with the life of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I don't know how far back your family goes and how uh, how many of those older p- folk in your family that you know? You might have grandparents that, you're aware, that you know, and maybe even grand- great-grandparents. I had a great-granddad once. He long died. He was a, he was a farmer, and it was... Uh, anyone who remembers the... This is going to date me. Remembers fame? Remember fame? So Mr. Shirovsky, you remember the guy with the big white beard? That was my great-grandfather. Looked just like him. Uh, didn't play the piano like him. He milked cows. That's what he did. Uh, and that was, on my, that was my dad's grandfather. And then on my mum's side, uh, she had a, an even bigger family. And my mum was one of ten children, a uh, big Victorian family, and grew up in, in South London. And uh, they had, her mum had a number of brothers and sisters. And I had a great aunt called Lily, who used to every Christmas come and play the piano and we'd all sing along. And a great uncle called Will. And my great uncle was a bachelor all his life, never married, and he was quite senior in the civil service up in London. And so he was fairly wealthy and would have had a good income all his life, but he didn't live that way. He lived quite a meager life. And as we all looked on as very young children, we, I guess, came to wonder, what does Uncle Will, great Uncle Will, do with his money? You know, you do wonder these things. I'm sure you don't, but, you know, we did. And, you know, didn't live uh, extravagantly, lived in a, you know, a fairly, fairly plain sort of life. And, uh, and then he died, and he died alone, which in some ways was sad. Uh, and then, of course, when he dies, as happens with all of us, the books are opened, aren't they? And you find out the answer to some of these questions. And to everyone's surprise and delight, actually, what we found out was that he had been giving away 80% of all he earned all his life. And he no, never told anyone, no one ever knew, he just lived generously all his life and he loved Jesus and 
I'm sure his reception into glory was pretty spectacular. Uh, you probably won't see him because he'll be near the front. You and I will be near the back, no doubt. That's not, that's not how heaven works, you know, but uh, it's a joke. Okay? It's not, not theology. <laughs> but uh, I've tried to honor him. <laughs> and uh, so what he had done was he had built generosity in. It wasn't ad hoc. It wasn't, oh, someone says that we ought to be generous in this moment. He'd built it into his life. It was in the fabric of who he was right the way through his life, generosity. If you sliced him up, you would find generosity all the way through. And God wants us to be a generous people, generous not just financially but in all sorts of ways. And we need to find out why that is. And uh, it's, it's kind of obvious, but we ought to look and see what the Word has to say about that uh, as we decide what sort of church that we should be. And if you found that passage in 2 Corinthians 8, it's a very famous passage, and Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's challenging them with the generosity of another church or other churches in Macedonia. He's saying, look at what these people have done in terms of their generosity, and let that be a challenge to you. Uh, That might be a strange way of motivating people. You might think, wow, so you're saying these people have done well and we should copy them. And that is pretty much what Paul is doing, actually. That's exactly what he's doing. Uh, And he's saying, look at how... uh, Let's read it and find exactly what he's saying rather than me making it up. And so here we find in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 1 to 4, we read this. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. It's a a strange juxtaposition of extreme poverty and joy welling up into generosity. Because that's not how you would think that sentence would go. You would think that extreme poverty and difficulty might well up in a request for help. That's how you and I might do it on Facebook. Uh, you know, please, I need some help today. Or, can, you know, having a bad day. Whereas their extreme trial and difficulty welled up in something different. It welled up in generosity. And Paul was able to say, look, here's an example of what generosity in, in the biblical terms looks like. And what we find actually throughout the Bible is generosity is built into the weave of God's people and the church as it appears in the New Testament. God, you see, is big-hearted, lavish, and generous. In fact, he's way over-the-top generous, ridiculously generous, beyond uh, any kind of normal computation. Anything that you might do that demonstrated generous, God has gone beyond it, way beyond it, in a way that makes even the words seem too small. You see, top to bottom, left to right, throughout the Bible, generosity is there from the beginning. And it begins with God. God doesn't come to us with anything and say, go and do this because it's a good thing to do if you want to make me happy. He never does it that way. And it's subtle, but it's important. God always starts with what he has done first. It's consistent right through the Bible, right through the New Testament. God did something first. 1 John 4, a very famous passage in verse 19, it says this, We love because he first loved us. Learn that verse. We love why? Why do we love? Because it's a good thing to do, because the world would be a better place if we did, because it's a nice thing to do, because the people out there need to know something. No, because he first loved you. 
We love because he first loved us. It was his initiation. He was generous first. He gave first. He came and found you. And sometimes in our stories of how we came to know Jesus, the story goes something like this. Well, I, I started to be interested in spiritual things, and someone took me in an alpha course, or I read a book, or I, someone gave me a tract in the street, or whatever it might have been, and I began my journey towards God. And that sometimes is the beginning of our stories. But here in the Bible, we find that your story began somewhere else. It began in God's heart for you. So whatever your story, before your story even began, God loved you and gave himself for you. And we love because he first loved us. It's really important. That way of thinking, that way of being motivated must be reflected in the church today. It must be. Otherwise, all we have is empty religion. If it's just behave better, love people, because that's what makes God happy, that's religious claptrap. Do you know that? It's nonsense. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible says this, he poured his life out for you, now reflect that love back to him. He loved you first. Very, very important, very subtle. Don't forget it, that's what grace is. Grace is that he loved you first, and it's there right throughout the Bible. We don't just see it in the New Testament, and we'll come back to the New Testament in a moment, but we see it in the Old Testament too. And you remember a few months back, we were looking at Moses bringing those people out of Egypt and bringing them to a country that was to be their own, giving them a land. They didn't have any land, and then they would be given a land of their own. And all the time, he was forming them into a people. And part of the motivation of forming them into a people was to demonstrate to a watching world what would a people look like where God was in the midst. What would that look like? What would it be like if God lived in the midst of his people? How would that be reflected? What would a a nation with God at his heart, how would that be? And it was the intention was that that would be pretty glorious and exciting, and others would want to be part of that. Now, that didn't always happen, but that was God's intention. And God gave them some rules and laws to live by, some principles to live by that would demonstrate something of his heart, something of who he was. And some of those laws are quite surprising. If you've ever read Leviticus, hands up who's just, you know, your daily reading is right there at the moment. No, really? Oh, surprise. Go and read it. It's interesting. Um, it's, great. it's a great read, Leviticus. <laughs> it's there for our blessing, so you ought to read it at some point. But I can understand if maybe it isn't in front of your daily reading notes right now. But there in Leviticus, we have the laws that were laid out for God's people to follow. And I want to look at just two of those in understanding something of God's generous heart, something of his weaving in generosity into the people of God. And the first one is this. There was the principle of gleaning. Who's been gleaning lately? Again, oh, it's just uh, somebody, maybe one or two. Maybe we don't even know what that word means anymore. It's, it's long gone, really, from our vocabulary. But let me explain this. What you had was a people who were all farmers. Everyone, essentially, except for the priests, would have land and they would have to produce food for their family and that would be essentially your daily work. That's what you would do most of the time and that's true for much of the world today. It's probably not true for you. I don't suppose many of you have been out sowing expecting that that what comes up is what you will eat next year. That's unlikely, I'm not metaphorically actually, that you go out and you, you till the soil and you plant your seed and up comes food for the next season. That's how they would have lived. 
And uh, we have the privilege of visiting Zambia from time to time, and that is how most of those people live. And if, you, if you're interested in, in coming and seeing uh, some of that, then probably next May, June time, we'll take a team out. If you want to be part of that team, we mentioned this once or twice before, please let me know. And you can come and see it firsthand, see how this works. And what happens there is each, uh, each family is given by the, the, the chief of the village, is given some land. They're given what's called a lima of land, which is so many paces by so many paces, and one lima should feed a family of about four or five if it's well farmed. That sometimes works, sometimes it doesn't, depending on the weather and the seasons and that sort of thing. And that's how these people would have lived here in the Old Testament, so they would have grown their, their crop. Now, of course, it brings a whole new understanding to sowing sparingly and sowing generously. Now, if you had land and you didn't sow much, what would you expect? You can't expect much. It's so obvious. That's why the Bible is written the way it is. It helps us to understand, but we do have to get ourselves into a farming mindset to understand it. Let's imagine, though, that we do sow generously. We sow well, and we've, we've got a lot of crop coming up. But here's the principle of gleaning. Don't harvest everything. Leave some. Leave some behind for people who don't have land. And let's read the verse in Leviticus 23. When you reap the harvest of your land... Don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor, for the foreigner residing among you, for I am the Lord. And what God was doing, he was making provision for people, either who'd lost the ability to grow their own or they'd come in from outside and didn't have any land. Whether you had land or not meant was whether you ate or not. Essentially, that's how it worked. And God wanted to make sure that people coming in were welcome and they had a means of support. And so that instruction was this. And for us, it might mean this. And are you thinking, are we, are we going to glean? Well, there are principles at work here, even though that, that wouldn't work because we don't sow seed anymore. But it would seem something like this. Leave some of your profits for the poor. Don't absolutely get everything you possibly can and put it all in your own bank account. Some of it should be for the poor. Some of it should be for those in need. And that's, that's that principle at work for us. That's how it would work. And if you think, wow, that seems like a radical idea, and there are Old Testament books entirely written that have that in the heart of it, some of those Old Testament books you ought to go and read, I suspect. Um, And right there in the heart is generosity built in. If you think that was a radical one, that ain't nothing compared to the next one, because the next one would be the principle of jubilee. So you have gleaning, and that would have happened year by year with each harvest. And next, what you had was this. So every seven years, they were instructed to leave the land fallow. And that, if you're a farmer, you'd know that that sometimes still happens. You leave a, a field alone for a year just to recover a bit. because so you're constantly growing stuff out of it, and the nutrients and stuff get sucked up into the crop. And sometimes you need to leave it alone. And that was what was built in for them. Every seven years, they were supposed to not harvest. They were supposed to not sow and reap, and they were supposed to save up enough for the Sabbath year. And then every seven Sabbath years, something else would happen. And so seven sevens, I know you can work that out. So every 49 years, what would happen? The idea was this, they would have a jubilee year, and the whole nation uh, would celebrate the jubilee. And in the jubilee, this is what happened, and this is radical, and it's generous, and uh, it might leave your eyes watering a bit. Because every 49 years, basically once in every lifetime, all debts were written off. Every debt was written off in the country. All land would be returned to its original owners, and all slaves would be released. Imagine that. 
an incredible moment that it would be like a national reset. And everyone would get the chance probably once in their lifetime to start again, however well or however badly you'd done, particularly if you'd done badly, this is good news for you, that if you'd done badly, my goodness, we'd get a chance to start again. And it meant that no one would get incredibly rich, and it meant no one would get incredibly poor. It does seem as if probably the historic records don't record them ever actually doing a jubilee, which is a, which is a shame. And, and maybe some of the challenge of it is why, but there was the principle in the heart of this nation as it was built together. And, the, and you think, well, yeah, if you were poor, that sounds good. What if you were rich? You might think, well, that seems like a bit of a, a, bit of a duff deal, actually, if I'd made some money. Well, there are two things that, two things that, you, that you need to think about. One is this, that they were never meant to become rich on the back of somebody else being crushed. Never. It shouldn't happen. And so the Jubilee year was there to ensure that that didn't happen, that you couldn't just crush those who got poorer and poorer and poorer into the dirt. That was never supposed to happen. And the reason it was never supposed to happen is the second, my second point, is because the land had been a gift to them in the first place. All good things, the Bible says, are given to you from God. It belongs to him first. And specifically there in Canaan, as those Israelite communities came together and distributed the land, they were to remember that, that this was a gift to you. It was given to you. It belongs to God. Actually, it never really belongs to you. It always belongs to him. And so, first and foremost, however well you might do, it would mean that, uh, that you would return that really to God first and then to whoever had originally owned it. Because what could happen is if your crops failed a bit, what might happen was that you had to borrow some money off someone else to make up the difference. And then if that didn't work, you might have to sell your land to a neighbor and then lease the land back. So now you're kind of doubly in debt. You owe money and now you owe them a lease as well. And then the final thing that you had to leverage was yourselves. And sometimes they had to sell themselves to be slaves. And all of that will be written off in the 49th year, in the Jubilee year. And so we celebrate Jubilee because that's what God has done for us. He's written off our debts. He's written it off in terms of our sinful nature. He's written it off. He doesn't count it against us. He gives us a fresh start, a clean sheet, uh, completely forgiven of all of the debt that we owe to God. And that's what he did in Jesus, but that's what he was demonstrating there in the Old Testament. So those two principles were at work there in the Old Testament. It was, and as, as I said at the start, it was built in. It wasn't ad hoc. It wasn't, oh yeah, we'll remember to be generous one day. It was right woven into the fabric of who they were together. Of course, in the New Testament, we see generosity as well. We see it in a different way, and it's about maybe something a bit different than just crops. And whilst the Old Testament is generous, the New Testament takes generosity to a different level. It takes it off the scale. In the Old Testament, Testament, they were given a land flowing with milk and honey. In the New Testament, they are given Jesus. And we are given Jesus, God's own dear son. It's, It's on a different level. He's given you something of ultimate value, of absolute value. And he's given it to you freely. And that is what happens at the cross. In Romans 8, we read this, as Paul is writing to this Roman church, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's 
working out something logically here. If God is for us, who could be against? How would that work? If God's for you, who could possibly be against you that would have any, you know, would it matter at all? God is for you. The Creator is for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If he'll give you Jesus, how would he withhold anything from you that is good for you? God wants you utterly convinced of his love for you. He wants you absolutely sure of it. He wants you to live day by day knowing that you are loved and cared for. And how, is he, how do we know that he wants that? Because he gave us Jesus before we even cared about him. Before we had any thought of him, he gave us the most precious gift that we could possibly have had. And for Paul, it's just logic. Gives you Jesus, how would he withhold anything? The greatest jewel, the, the most incredible gift in all creation is freely given to you. How would he withhold anything? It makes no sense that he would. And it goes even further than that, because well, we could understand that, and maybe we've heard that enough times to grasp it. But in Romans 5, we read this, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't just what you started sh- you know, shining your act up a bit. God, you caught God's eye and he thought, oh yeah, okay, let's give him Jesus. No, while you were far off, and parts of the Bible said this, while you hated God, he loved you. He gave himself for you when you were far away. God has shown outrageous generosity. Outra- you want to be outraged by something, be outraged by God's generosity. He gave you something that you didn't deserve, that you didn't ask for. Why? Because he loved you and because he wanted you. And Jesus himself then starts to instruct us and we read through the Gospels all sorts of things that God says to us and he says this, give and it will be given to you in Luke 6. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, poured out into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is saying, now, now you've understood something of God's generosity, now go live out that principle. Go, everything is yours. I'm providing for you, I'm leading you, I'm guiding you, I've given you all you need. Now go and live that out in the world and see what happens. Go and explore what it means to be those who are receiving an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Go and live like that's true. If you knew, if you knew you had a multi-million pound inheritance coming to you, how would you live? You would live generously, wouldn't you? You would think, wow, it doesn't matter because it's coming. It's coming. The day is coming. I'll receive an inheritance that is beyond my possible imaginings. And God says, that that is what it's like. You have something that will never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. It says, now go live generous because he has first been generous. That passage in Luke 6 is a reflection of an Old Testament prophecy from someone called Malachi. And in Malachi 3, and they also gave tithes in the Old Testament. 10% of everything that they grew was given to God, and they went down into the tiniest detail of everything that they grew and everything that they produced. They would give 10% of it to God. Um, and this is what Malachi says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Do it. Do the thing that God's told you to do. Be generous with what, you've, what you have. And it says, test me in this. Test me by doing this says the Almighty God, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be room enough to store it. Let's be that kind of people who just build in generosity. 
Let's look at how we might do that, just a few ways before we finish. I want us to be that. Not You see, we could do that as a church, but actually to do it as a church, we need to adopt these things as individuals as well. It's no good saying, well, as a church, we're going to be generous, and actually no one in the church does it, so we just have to force it on, on top, as it were. No, right into the depth of who we are, God wants us to be a generous people because he first is generous. You see, when people come to City Church and they do that here and up at Bradley Stoke, one of the comments they often make is, well, what a friendly people. You're a friendly bunch, and that's good news. It's good to be friendly. Wouldn't it be great, too, if they said, what a generous people. They're generous in all kinds of ways. Wouldn't that be lovely? That'd be great. Why would that be good? Would it be good because that's how we should be? No, because it reflects who God is. What are we trying to do? We're trying to show people what God is like. We're trying to invite them into a relationship with Jesus. And to be generous is to demonstrate the gospel to people. It's to say, we, we, we don't just say it, we believe it. What people are looking for, brothers and sisters, is this. They're looking for authenticity. Will you live an authentic life that reflects something of God? So seed generously and so live generously. Let's be generous. I've just put down four different ways we can be generous. Firstly, be generous with forgiveness. Let's be generous with forgiveness. Well, the way God has been generous with us and demonstrated through Jesus is this, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That he came for us, he forgave us all our sins. He's blotted them out as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed your sins from you. You are free. You come to Christ, you ask him for forgiveness, he will forgive you. You're done. Sin is done. It no longer has a hold on you. You will never be held accountable for your sins before God. Be generous with forgiveness with each other, therefore. Don't hold grudges against each other. Let it go quickly. Be people that don't just, oh yeah, I remember, we used to be friends, but actually they said something and I can't get it out of my head. So I've just distanced myself from that person. I've done that in my life more than once, and I'm encouraging you not to do it because it's just damaging, foolish. It doesn't reflect, doesn't reflect God's love for us. He chose to remember our sin no more. Let's be that kind of people. People who are quick to forgive, not quick to remember grudges. In Ephesians 4, don't grieve God, don't break his heart. This is from the message. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't, make, uh, don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive Forgive one another quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ has forgiven you. Quickly and thoroughly. That's how to do it. And let's be generous with it. Be generous to forgive. And let's keep our accounts short with one another. Let's be generous as we love each other. And maybe we should have started with this one. Love is always costly because love means giving something of yourself to somebody else. It always costs. It always does. But let's be a loving people. Let's love one another. The most famous verse in the whole Bible says this, God so loved that he gave. Love motivated action in him. And he loved and he gave, and he gave his own dear son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And let's be that kind of people who allow that motivation of love to inform our actions. Just right now, just as you're thinking, Think about someone you could be kind to and then go do it straight away. Do it immediately. 
going, just think now, who could, how could I be kind to someone? Maybe in a way that they would never know and then do it. Might be a family member, could be a parent, might be a more distant family member, could be someone in the church here, might be someone else in the city, could be a neighbor. How could you be kind? How could you demonstrate something of this generosity, this generous love? Go and do it. And in so doing, you're reflecting something of the love that God has already shown you. Another way we can show love, and maybe a profound way in our culture, in our society, is this, by giving time to one another. It's said many times that we are cash rich. You might not feel cash rich. But believe me, compared to much of the world, you are cash rich. But we are certainly time poor. We don't have a lot of time. We're rushing from one thing to the next. And one way we can love each other is by giving time to one another, by taking time, by making time. You don't have to binge watch Netflix the whole time. You could, you could just set that aside for a bit and you could go and spend some time with someone who needs some of your time. And we could always say, yeah, that's for the leaders to do. No, that's for us to do because we love Jesus. God came to us, gave us years and years of his life living on earth because he wanted to show us what God was like. Let's be people who are generous with our time. It's said of parents and children, it says that, or many people have said actually, that love is spelt T-I-M-E, and so it is amongst us. And finally, and we can't avoid it, and we shouldn't be afraid to address it, being generous doesn't just mean money, but it does mean money. <laughs> it's not more than, it's definitely more than money, but it's not less than money. Jesus spoke about money all the time. Often he did. You remember he spoke to the rich young ruler and there was someone who was full of promise and potential, came to Jesus, said, I've done all these things, I've followed the law, I've, I've lived a great life, now I want to follow you, what else should I do? And Jesus said, go give all your money away. And he walked away, and Jesus didn't pursue him. It was the thing that had gripped his heart. It was his idol. It was the thing that he couldn't give up. And Jesus identified it and called it out, and he didn't chase after him. He said, oh, no, let's make it a bit easier for you. He'd be really useful in the kingdom. No, he let him go. Why? Because he knew that his treasure was in his wallet, in his bank account. Let's not be like that. Let's be generous with our money. Let's just read, as we finish, 2 Corinthians 9. Remember, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. That, that means all sorts of things. That means love. That means time. That means forgiveness. All those things are true of, in that passage. But actually, he goes on to apply it financially. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. And in that moment, really, he's saying, look, tithing was Old Testament principle. Now it's a heart thing. Now it's about what's in your heart. It's, it's, it's a matter of how you want to respond to what God has done for you. So it's, it's not just about a number, it's about a heart response. And so what I do in terms of my giving, does it reflect how I respond to God? Have I understood, have I understood enough about God for it to inform how I give? And that's what Paul is saying, that's how it should be. Each of you should give whatever you decide in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. It's not just a number and get to that number and you get a tick. No, it's, he's asking you to look in, inside and say, how do I want to respond to this great gift of Jesus? How do, how do I want it to look? How do I want to weave it in to who I am? And he goes on to say, God loves a cheerful giver or God loves a hilarious giver. 
there's once or twice in our lives where Cheryl and I have sat down together and come up with a number and then just laughed and really look this is hilarious but you know what when we've done that God has provided in ways that would it would be embarrassing to put numbers to how God has provided for us it would be absolutely staggering God has provided in ways when we applied this principle so we want to respond in kind God has blown our socks off time and time again because of his great and incredible love and generosity.